Hi, this is Mike, the friendly Sasquatch, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 49 finds the companions getting settled in Nepule, first at a temporary hideout at the Laughing Maiden Inn, and then, later, in the more suitable accommodations of a disused pottery studio. Shane explains how she knew that Bromley and Shrawl were trustworthy. She'd overheard a part of their conversation and picked up on a reference to a certain parable. A pair of back-to-back segments follow, with the first being the parable itself, and the second being a flashback to Shane's youth, her several incarcerations, and what she learned during her time in prison. The focus then shifts to Captain Krell, who, while still mystified by the atrocities in the dungeon, returns to the surface to discover that there has been a mass exodus. The Queen and Princess are gone. So is a sizable retinue of servants and family members. Captain Sindwan is likewise absent, though Krell cannot determine if he's left with the Queen or not. Finally, we take some time to learn a little bit more about the town of Nepule and the man who rules it. Lord Goddard, who the PCs are meant to murder, turns out to be a middle-aged, blind man with a reputation for kindness. Chapter 50 Part 1 Day 128 Late Afternoon Party Status After natural healing, the party members' hit points are as follows. Yellowfly, 28 of 30 hit points. Shawnee, 26 of 26. Jace, 31 of 31. Catsbane, 15 of 15. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Read Languages, Magic Missile, Invisibility, and Mirror Image. Bazu has prayed for Detect Evil, Cure Light Wounds, and Bless. What do you mean he's blind? asked Shane. Blind, snapped Yellowfly. As in, he can't see a thing. The fighter waved a hand back and forth in front of his face to demonstrate. Shane turned to Jace. You see, she said acidly, he's been infected with your recent fondness for sarcasm. She turned back to Yellowfly and changed the subject. What's in the package? When Fly had entered, he had thrown a fairly heavy package onto the floor, and it had made a dull metallic clink as it landed. Some food, a couple of books for Catsbane, and, uh, a couple of other items. Shrawl said we'll probably need all of it. After their meeting, Shrawl gave Yellowfly a package. It mostly contains mundane supplies that I won't bother itemizing here, but included with the food and other necessities are a few special items that Shrawl has been hanging onto since his old adventuring days. 
He doesn't expect to ever need them personally again, so he's donating them to Yellowfly's gang. Some are books that once belonged to the magic user in Shrall's former adventuring party. Some misadventure or other befell that person years before, but Shrall still has some of their books. These are almost definitely not spellbooks. I say almost definitely because, you know, it's just more fun to roll some rocks at times like this. I'll say a 20 on a d20 means there is a spellbook among this small collection. A very kind listener recently sent me a care package, and in it is this beautiful big purple chonker of a d20. I'm going to use that. Here's the roll. I got a four. Oh well. These books are far from normal, however. They contain the stuff of wizardry, even though they're not spell books per se. Frankly, Catsbane has been thirsting for stuff like this since he fled Carrick's Tower months ago. Another item in the package is a suit of enchanted chain mail. It belonged to yet another one of Shrall's former companions who did not survive their adventures together. The chainmail is comparatively lightweight, and it bestows a bonus to the wearer's AC. What kind of bonus? Plus one seems appropriate, but as long as we've got this chonker right here, how about a 5% chance that it's a plus two? Once again, a 20 on the die means it is. The roll. A 17 this time. It's a plus one chain shirt. Jace will get it, while Bazu, who happens to be about Jace's size, will get the fighter's old hauberk. Up until now, Bazu has worn no armor at all, so this is a welcome boon for both of these PCs. And that's not quite all. There are a couple other items of significance in the package. But, well, we'll get to those soon enough. Jace had put on the chain shirt and was trying to admire his new armor without the use of a mirror, staring down the lengths of his arms and torso. It feels so light. I hope it can turn a blade as well as the other one. His old shirt was now in Bazu's hands. The cleric was oppositely impressed by the weight, lifting it in the air, having never worn armor before, and frowning with an expression that clearly showed an expectation that it would be lighter. Catsbane had gone straight for the books and already had his face buried in the pages of one. As for Shawnee, she was picking through the dried foodstuffs. Suddenly she looked up and said, I don't understand why they need all of us if this Lord Goddard is blind. In fact, why do they need any of us? Why don't they do it? I can speak to that, actually, Yellowfly replied. It has to be us because we're not known in Nepule. So if things go bad, there will be no one that can be named. Beyond that, Bromley has this idea of building up a legend around us. People don't know our faces, but apparently many do know of our deeds. The story of the King's Three Days has traveled all the way here. There's even a couple of bards who started introducing songs and poems about it into their acts. And one of those is Rattlestaff, believe it or not. Of course, he's only doing it because Bromley asked him to, and these other performers are just imitating him. But whether real or manufactured, well, I guess we're becoming famous. He gave a quick wan smile, and Shawnee looked back unhappily. I don't want to be famous. She had picked out a selection of dried cranberries from the rations. Presently, she popped one into her mouth, chewed, swallowed, and continued her questioning. Still though, why not just ask one of us to do it? I mean, the job sounds... well, it sounds easy. Killing Goddard will be easy, as you say. Too easy, and I don't feel good about doing it, to be honest. But getting to him will be plenty difficult. The floor of the pottery studio was dirt. Yellowfly plucked a dagger from his belt and knelt down to draw in it with the tip of the blade. Look. He drew a large square. These are the outer walls. Here's the only gate. Shani held up a hand. We've already started a map on Paperfly, but like you said, there's only one way in or out. Obviously, it would be crazy to try and get him in his home. We'll do it when he's out and less defended. 
Well, that's just it, said Yellowfly, erasing his simple map with his boot and walking over to the table where Shawnee was. Because he's blind, he rarely leaves. In winter, he never leaves, so that's one big problem. Another is that Bromley and Troll don't really know what's inside the compound. He tapped an index finger on Shawnee's map. They know what their people have seen from the gate. The main compound is here, and the interior perimeter is ringed by thorn bushes. There's nothing built against the outer wall, so from any position atop the wall, it's a sheer drop. The closest interior buildings are a good 20 feet from that wall. Yellowfly sighed heavily, tapping on another part of the map. <sighs> the place was built for security more than utility. Over here is a practice ground for swordplay. And that brings me to the last problem. There's more, asked Shawnee, around a mouthful of food. There's more. Lord Goddard keeps one of the best swordsmen in Camertine in his employ. Perhaps you've heard of Sir Patrick Solomar. Shawnee shook her head, but Catsbane looked up from the book he was reading and slowly raised his eyebrows. Clearly, he had heard of the man. Why would someone so esteemed take a job in Nepul? Asked Shawnee, curious. One would think he'd be ever at His Majesty's royal hip. Some argument or other with Colfrey over a point of honor. That's what Schroll said, offered Jace. Apparently, Salomar hates the king and all nobles, though he be one himself. He took the position with Lord Goddard to be as far from Colfrey's core as possible. So that's the situation. Still sound easy to you, Shawnee. Do they think we're miracle workers? Replied the rogue, slowly shaking her head. Frankly, yes. Or at least they hope we are. Is there anything else? Would they like us to pluck the moon from the sky, too? That plague of sarcasm has reached you, too, hmm? Well, it should, because yes, there's more. Yellowfly walked back to the package he and Jace had brought with them, reached down, and took something else from the bag. It was a kind of weapon, an axe, bigger than a hatchet and smaller than a battle axe. It had a head like a halberd with a crescent blade on one side and a spike on the other. There was an emblem enameled on it that showed a white fish on a split background of blue and green. It's a traditional Nepulic weapon, he explained. The design is their old flag. What do they want us to do with it? asked Shawnee doubtfully. The fighter shrugged. Well, it's not very pleasant. How do you fix a quandary? There's only one solution. Portal Quandary is a Dungeons and Dragons real play comedy, drama, dramedy, dramedy podcast about a party of mismatched heroes trying to do just that. Join Dungeon Master Tyron Cross as he hurls our Melbourne-based party into a mystical world full of strange creatures, stranger people, and strangest of all, unanticipated self-discovery. Gross. Listen to Portal Quandary now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Episodes released tri-weekly. Let me get this straight. They want us to break into a compound with one single entrance that nobody has seen inside, get past one of the best swordsmen in the realm, and then cut off the head of a kind old man who cannot even see, asked Shawnee. Uh, that's the assignment, yes, replied Yellowfly. And bring back the head. Correct. And they want us to use a special axe to do it. Also correct. I understand it's for proof, but why do they want us to do it with this? She was hefting the axe, testing its weight, and frowning. Yellowfly pursed his lips, then said, The axe is to be left behind, to leave a message. Fine. What are they planning to do with Goddard's head? The last ruler of Nepule had her head put on a pike, said Jace. They lashed it to the spire of the tallest tower. Bromley wants to do the same with Goddard's. Another message, I suppose. But I still don't see what it proves that a bunch of fugitives from Silmoral can come and kill an old blind man. That doesn't sound very heroic to me. You're missing the point, Shawnee, said Yellowfly. 
So tell me, what is the point? They want to prove that nobody is untouchable, but I'll give you that it isn't very heroic. I feel the same way, added Chase, shaking his head. Why haven't Bromley or Shrull bribed some of the servants or guards to find out what's inside the compound? They've tried, but it's impossible. I'm sure you've noticed that the walls are made of different stone than the other buildings around here. It's the same with the buildings inside the compound. All of it was brought here, a great expense I'd imagine, after the original keep was demolished. What has that got to do with anything? Shana had put down the axe and now had her arms crossed over her chest. Lord Goddard's compound is entirely built from Silmarillion stone. It's like they transplanted a bit of the capital all the way over here. But stone's not all they brought. Every guard and servant is from Silmoral. There isn't a single Nepula to be found within those walls. Well, actually, that's not true. There is one. Every couple of years, Goddard selects a random child from a poor Nepulic family and takes them in. Gives them a proper education. Trains them. Indoctrinates them? Offered Caspian. He put down his book and had been paying attention since the mention of the swordsman, Salomar. Perhaps even hold them as a kind of unofficial hostage. Perhaps. I think Cole's brother was one of those chosen children. Didn't he say something about that once? Anyway, there's no one who could be bought and they can't get their own agent in, either. Goddard handpicks his staff on his rare visits back to the capital. Furthermore, his people are loyal, well paid, and by all indications, they like him muttered Chase, scratching the back of his head. If he is so sweet and blind to boot, and he not relish your idea of removing his head. They, uh, they did offer a significant reward for doing it, but I don't know. Perhaps we should just call it off. Let's not rush to make a saint of this man. It was Bazu. They had never heard such iron in his voice before, and it silenced everyone. Though this man be gentle, and blind. Let us not forget that evil takes many forms, including blindness to injustice and oppression. Buzzy was on his feet now, finger lifted in the air. And let us not celebrate the man who dines on steak while his people subside on acorns and gruel throughout the winter, as I have been told has been the case more than once during Lord Goddard's governance. The hoarding up of money is a great evil in and of itself, but even more so when one's fellows are starving at one's feet. Shawnee was nodding to his every word. When Basu finished speaking, she walked across the dirt floor, picked the axe back up, and said in a voice that did not flinch or waver, What was it you said the other day, Basu? Whatever man may not himself use might deny the needy what they require. Well, I believe there's no such thing as a good rich man or a good noble man, and Lord Goddard is both. I'll do it. The companions will spend the rest of the day planning and preparing to the extent that they're able. Shane is not the only one with a job to do. Every member of Yellowfly's gang will play their part. One of the main considerations is that the assassination alone will not be enough. The PCs need to neutralize any kind of strength Goddard's followers will have to effectively respond, and so those of a martial disposition who serve him, especially Sir Salomar, will need to be neutralized as well, one way or another. I tried to imagine how real players around a table would deal with the situation, and I think I have a good idea of what they might do, but I won't subject you to the companions strategizing. We've listened to them talk for long enough. It's high time for some action. Chapter 50 Part 2 Day 129 Early Morning Party Status 
After natural healing, the party members' hit points are as follows. Yellowfly, 29 of 30 hit points. Shawnee, 26 of 26. Jace, 31 of 31. Catsbane, 15 of 15. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Times 2, and Mirror Image. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. Shawnee was a ghost. If not for the trail of footprints she left behind her in the snow, there would have been no sign of her at all. Bazu had said a prayer over her and touched her on the forehead with his thumb. Then, when he took his hand away, her companions had stared at her goggle-eyed. Incredible, Yellowfly had breathed. Utterly silent. Jace had blinked comically as he spoke. It was strange. While she had been able to hear them perfectly, Bazu's prayer had apparently rendered her as silent as the moon. The cleric had warned her that the spell would last only two hours, and so she must complete her work within that time or risk being exposed. Bazu had also blessed her with a resistance to cold, though that boon would last her a mere hour. Catsbane had assisted as well. As he had done before, he gave her the gift of invisibility and promised it would last until she struck the fatal blow, if she were careful. All that Shawnee presently carried on her person was likewise invisible, though it wasn't much. She had a length of rope cut down to 25 feet and knotted at intervals. Additionally, she had the Nepulic axe in a backpack Catsbane had purchased during the day. She wore this pack over her usual leathers and carried both her short sword at her hip and a dagger down her right boot. Of course, she wore her magical gloves and carried her thieves' tools in a belt pouch, too. Practically all else had been left behind at the potter's studio. She cracked her fingers and studied the flagstone wall for little cracks and handholds. She found some that suited her and, digging in her fingers, pulled herself up the first few feet of the vertical plane. Shawnee is now a 7th level thief, with a whopping 93% chance to successfully scale this wall. Normally, I'd inflict a penalty on an activity like this when performed in extreme weather, but Bazu's spell of Resist Cold is still in effect, and will be, easily, for the full duration of the ascent. All in all, I'm approaching this roll with humble confidence. Honestly, if she fails, not only will she take falling damage, but I will have to go back to the drawing board in terms of this invasion. So no pressure, Shawnee, but I really need you to succeed. Okay, here we go. On a deep percentile. A 17. Whew. Okay, so far so good. Now Shawnee is at the top of the wall at the rear of the compound. Given this location, her rope, which will become visible after she lets go of it, should be out of sight. Speaking of that rope, it will allow her to get down on the far side fairly safely and quickly, but there is the problem of the thorn bush below her. Using her rope, and kind of rappelling down, she can attempt to push off the wall and jump over it. Despite it being covered in snow, she does know it's there after all. A simple dexterity check will tell us if she can clear the thorn bush. I need a 16 or less on a d20. A fail will mean some minor damage and also the loss of the invisibility spell. Here's the roll. I got a six. Shawnee landed, cat-like, on all fours, letting go of the rope and tucking her scabbarded sword out of the way in one fluid motion. By habit, she dashed away from what felt like an exposed position and made for the nearest shadow. In a few moments, she was at the back corner of the main estate. She peeked around and into the adjoining yard, still taking unnecessary pains to remain small and out of sight. 
In front, and ahead by 50 yards, was a snowy, flat field, empty of all but a pair of wicker and wood training dummies. A few disks of hay, bound into shape by twine, leaned up against a barrel off to one side. Opposite these, Shawnee could see a rack of some sort, with the snow-laden covering sheet draped over it. Just then, someone wearing a heavy mantle over his chain shirt appeared from the building's main entrance, followed by a second person, similarly dressed but of a child's stature. The adult moved to the rack and pulled off the cover to reveal an arrangement of weapons underneath. From left to right were a pole-axe, a mace, a battle-axe, a hand-axe, a greatsword, a short-sword, and a spear. Resting on the ground beneath the spot where the hand-axe was hung was a full helmet of steel. Shawnee pulled back by instinct, but then, remembering her invisibility and reminding herself that Catspan's magic had never failed her, she poked her head back out. The two figures must have just shared a joke, because a bark of manly laughter was audible after the child pointed at the greatsword. The adult passed him the shorter blade instead. This was followed by some kind of dispute that, by appearances, indicated the child did not wish to wear the helmet. The adult must have won the argument, for the child, his shoulders drooping, scooped it up and then put it on. This must be Sir Salomar, thought Shane. It occurred to her that she could take this opportunity to dispatch him while she was invisible. But if she did, Catspin's spell would end and her mission would become almost impossible. She pressed her lips together. It was a shame to let slip such a chance. She continued to watch them. In the square, teacher and pupil touched swords and began to spar. Good, good. Yes, like that. Do not drop your guard, young man. Chin down. Shawnee took the opportunity of their diverted attention to edge along the wall. The side door that she was making for was a mere 20 paces away. It was a bizarre and exhilarating feeling being exposed thus. Even though the various enchantments placed on her rendered her silent and invisible, she did not feel either of those things. She could see and hear herself with perfect clarity. Even worse was the necessity for her to turn her back on the two fighters as, using her thieves tools, she bent to pick the inevitably locked door. If she failed at this, she would need to enter Goddard's home through the front door. Windows would not be an option. She had noted earlier that all of them were shuttered or fitted with crossed bars of iron. Invisible and silent or not, she did not relish the idea of going in through the main entrance. She pushed the thought away, took a deep breath, and got to work. With her magical gloves, Shawnee has a 65% chance to successfully defeat the side door's lock. She still has 30 minutes remaining on Resist Cold, and an hour and a half on the Silence 15-foot Radius spell, by the way. The lock itself is a fairly simple one, so perhaps the difficulty here comes from how hard it would be for her to relax and concentrate with Sir Salomar at her back and not 50 feet away. Here comes the roll on D-Percentile. I've got... 49. There's a little click that only Shawnee can hear. She flinches violently anyway, snapping a quick look over her shoulder. Of course, Sir Salomar and his pupil can hear nothing and continue with their lesson. Hoping desperately not to find anyone on the other side of the door, Shawnee pushes it open and slips inside. She was in an empty hall. Once it became clear that there was no one there to see the door moving on its own, she shut it behind her. By habit, she glanced down to make a mental note of what the floor was made from. Stone, with the green carpet running down its length. This was not a servant's area, as she had expected, but a main artery of the estate. The corridor stretched ahead by some 80 feet before opening into a large chamber, 
and continuing on the other side. Given the Silmarillion taste for symmetrical design, Shani correctly assumed that the layout on the far side of the chamber would be a mirror image of this one. There were four doors in the hall between herself and the central space, two on each side. No sooner had she taken all this in than one of the doors opened, and a woman entered the corridor. Shawnee froze in place, letting out an involuntary gasp of surprise before clapping a hand over her mouth. Of course, her presence could not be detected by the woman, who went about her business, humming tunelessly. Shawnee was not twenty feet away, and if it weren't for her companion's spells, she would have been completely exposed. She had a sudden reckless urge to laugh out loud, or even jump up and down. She settled for a little mirthful noise and relaxed, watching the woman but ready to move back if she needed to. Bazu had warned her that the enchantment of silence extended around her in a kind of bubble that reached for seven or eight feet in every direction. If anyone stepped inside that bubble, they would feel as though they had gone instantly deaf and would be alerted that something was amiss. The woman, Shawnee surmised, was a servant, though she did not wear what Shawnee thought of as servant's clothes. Her garment was a plain but good quality outfit of dyed linen. Her hair was twisted into a bun, and she held a bucket of water in one hand. After casting about a quick furtive glance, first to her right, and then to her left, and looking right through Shawnee, she farted, fanned the air around her with her free hand while making a face, and then passed through the opposite door. Once again, Shawnee was alone. This anonymity made her feel strangely godlike and deeply lonely at the same time. Is this what happened after you died and became a spirit? She refocused on the task at hand and crept ahead, exhaling as she passed the spot where the washerwoman had been, and continued until she could see the details of the first floor's central room at the end of the corridor. It was most impressive. An opulent and massive pair of white marble stairs to her right flowed down from the second level like ribbon tails. A heavy cast iron banister traced its inside curves. At the bottom, they terminated at a woven rug of patterned green and yellow diamond shapes, atop which was a statue of a robed figure made of the same white marble as the stairs. Paintings with polished darkwood frames were arranged on every wall in neat little clusters of four. Most of these were only a few hands' breadth in size, and showed portraits of young, fashionably attired members of the Goddard family. One exception was a large, full-body likeness of King Culfrey, flanked, as usual, by flower-bearing children. Another was a landscape painting of a man Shawnee assumed to be Lord Goddard himself, posing in front of Nepules at her walls in summer. In the painting, Goddard held a rod in one hand and a white bird in the other. Shawnee had no idea what all that was supposed to mean, if it signified anything at all. Completing the decor were a quartet of display suits of armor. These motionless, polished steel sentinels caught and reflected the orange glow cast by the recently lit fireplace, which occupied a space in the wall opposite the stairs. Shawnee took a moment to listen. There were soft noises up ahead, a child coughing. Other sounds of light rustling were behind her, the woman from before arranging objects in a kitchen, perhaps. She needed to get on with it. The spells cast upon her would not last forever. But where should she go? If I were lord of a place like this, thought Shawnee, I would live on the second floor. She put a foot on one of the white marble steps, then another. Slowly, she crept up to the main floor drawing her sword as she went. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on X. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. 
My thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share a couple of your kind reviews. These two were both posted on YouTube by Isolwolf666 and the Tomar33. Isolwolf666 writes, Great episode. Excited to discover what will happen next. The editing and sound design is amazing and inspiring. Been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and the difference in quality is sometimes really, really apparent. Bravo. While I don't always enjoy the stuff that happens to the characters or some of the older rules, the immersive, impeccable storytelling and overall quality has me hooked. And the Tomar33 writes, This stuff is like candy for your brain. Thank you very much, Isolwolf666 and the Tomar33. I really appreciate your kind words of support. I also really appreciate that you both took the time to write those comments. This is as good a time as any to mention, and I'm not sure if I ever have before, that I do publish the podcast to YouTube. I suppose I should also mention that there isn't any visual component to speak of. But if YouTube is a more convenient way for you to listen in, it is available that way. I'd also like to thank this episode's excellent actors. We've got some of the usual voices, Kevin Berenger, Andrew Fling, and Kai Ellen, played Jace, Bazu, and Katzbane, respectively. There's a new voice in the mix, too, though he's a bit off to one side and in the distance in this episode. Chris Cornish of Druidcraft Woodworks plays Sir Patrick Salomar, the knight. We'll hear more from him in future, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Kevin, Andrew, Kyellen, and Chris. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I keep all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. It's the story where chaos rolls. RPG Match is a TTRPG matching service that allows you to browse and connect with other tabletop folks who like to play like you do. Want to find someone to play a new game with? RPG Match. Hard to find players who will actually show up on time? RPG Match. RPG Match asks the important questions about safety tools, character death, and stylistic preferences, so you're guaranteed a good fit before you sit down at the table or VTT. RPG Match is also partnering with major publishers from Chaosium to Free League to Paizo and more to allow you to unlock special badges. But RPG Match is more than a matching service. They're building a community online from the ground up with tabletop gamers in mind. Best of all, it's all free. Visit rpgmatch.org today and see what they've got to offer. Use the URL rpgmatch.org slash tale of the manticore to get a special tale of the manticore badge on your profile.